Welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Kevin Hogan. Let's take a look at our top stories. Two of the four Americans kidnapped at gunpoint in Mexico are reported dead, and the reason for the trip seems to be cosmetic surgery. Does the kidnapping have a connection to the cartel war in the area? We hear from an expert. A House committee on COVID says the WHO's incoming chief scientist made a crucial change to a 2020 paper. The paper attempted to disprove the COVID lab leak theory. Voting rights being restored to Minnesota felons. Convicted felons will be able to cast their votes right after completing their prison sentence. Los Angeles District Attorney George Gascone has lost a retaliation case against him. The jury awarded more than $1 million to the prosecutor filing the lawsuit. New information on the Americans kidnapped in northern Mexico. Two have been found dead and two are still alive, with one reportedly injured. That's according to the regional governor. Multiple sources report the group of four friends were going there for one of them to have a tummy tuck surgery done. Now we hear from an expert on human trafficking investigations about rescue efforts, possible cartel involvement, and security from those organizations. Joining us now to discuss is Victor Avila, a retired special agent with U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement and author of Agent Under Fire. While on assignment in Mexico, Victor suffered multiple gunshot wounds and survived a violent ambush by a cartel. Victor, thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you for having me back. These are unknown assailants who violently kidnapped four U.S. citizens at gunpoint after crossing the border into Mexico from Texas. Can you walk us through the steps law enforcement can take to rescue them? Absolutely. Uh, at this point, we have all uh, U.S. law enforcement that are uh, housed within uh, the country of Mexico. We have offices uh, specifically in Matamoros. Uh, there's an HSI office there, an ICE office there. There's also FBI, DEA in Mexico City and throughout the, the country of Mexico and are working diligently with the, the Mexican officials to try to locate these Americans. Um, um, the, the latest is that they're just, they've been disappeared after um, what appears to be the Gulf cartel in a uh, big uh, plaza fight and you know t- trying to take over this uh, area of the Matamoros, Tamaulipas area, this a major corridor for drug smuggling, human smuggling and human trafficking. And the Gulf cartel has been in, in a big war with both the Sinaloa cartel and the cartel Jalisco New Generation. And you touch on the offices coordinating. The four Americans were last seen in the city of Matamoros and Tamaulipas State, like you mentioned. That area is notorious for Gulf drug cartel activity. Do you suspect any connection to the kidnapping? Absolutely. This is definitely this is definitely associated with drugs. And um, unfortunately, you know, um, we have um, uh, Americans traveling into the United States. In this case, uh, we understand they had uh, North Carolina plates in their vehicle. Um, and so um, we don't know the intentions of what the Americans were doing there. Um, either way, the, the, what's, what's striking and very different about this is that not only were the Americans shot and possibly some uh, deceased, is that the uh, assailants, possibly Gulf cartel members, took the bodies with them, even the ones that appear to be severely injured. That is very disturbing. Now, following this kidnapping, Republicans are warning about the threat cartels pose to Americans. They're saying the cartels couldn't ask for a better, quote unquote, partner in crime than President Biden. Meanwhile, the Biden administration recently sanctioned a Mexican drug cartel for operating fentanyl labs. Do you think enough is being done to keep Americans safe from these dangerous organizations? 
Absolutely not. And um, and yes, uh, Mexico loves uh, having uh, Biden as a partner uh, <laughs> next door and as a neighbor because he hasn't done anything to secure the border. And Mexico uh, is very responsible in their role for their failure to do anything on their side of the border. So we're on this. That's why we have this chaotic uh, sequence of events where Americans are being killed, Mexican nationals are being killed. And remember, people from a, uh, over 150 different countries coming through the country of Mexico that are also being raped and being victimized uh, because of the open border systems that this administration has. Yeah, nothing good comes from having these cartels allowed to operate freely. Now, what do you suggest needs to be done? Well, um, one of the biggest things I think is way overdue is to des designate the cartels as foreign terrorist organizations. And I've heard some uh, lawmakers start calling them uh, to label them as FTOs, but it's, it's not enough to just label them. I label them every day. I don't call them drug cartels anymore. We need to officially designate them under the State Department, just like ISIS, just like the Taliban, just like Al-Qaeda, because that's what they are. They're terrorist organizations that have not only terrorized the country of Mexico for many years, they have, uh, they're an imminent threat to our country with the fentanyl poisonings and deaths that we suffer every day in our country, the methamphetamine and the rest of the illicit activity that they bring from Mexico into the U.S. Yes, something needs to be done, and that label could be a start. Victor Avila, retired special agent with U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement, really great to have your analysis. Thank you. And in Veracruz, Mexico, over 100 unaccompanied minors were found inside an abandoned truck trailer yesterday. Mexican authorities say most of them were from Guatemala. Over 200 adult migrants were found inside the trailer in addition to the children. The adults were from Guatemala, Honduras, El Salvador, and Ecuador. Authorities say they found the trailer on a highway without a driver. It was outfitted with fans and a partially ventilated roof. It had a structure built inside that created a second level. Mexico's government says it's one of the biggest recent discoveries of migrant children traveling through Mexico. Two Biden administration officials say the policy of detaining migrant families who cross the border illegally is back on the table. President Biden ended the practice when he took office. It's one of several options officials are weighing as they prepare for the end of Title 42 in May. That's the public health order that allows border agents to turn away immediately certain migrants who cross the southern border illegally. The WHO's new chief scientist made a crucial change to an influential 2020 paper on the origins of COVID. The paper claimed it was improbable that COVID-19 came from a lab. Entity's Daniel Monahan has the report. Incoming WHO chief scientist Jeremy Farrar was credited with helping guide the paper about the origin of COVID-19. That's according to an email released by the House Subcommittee on the Coronavirus Pandemic. The email from Columbia University professor Ian Lipkin to Farrar said, quote, Thanks for shepherding this paper. Rumors of bioweaponeering are now circulating in China. Farrar responded that he would push the nature angle, adding that he wanted to get the paper out as soon as possible. In the early 2020 paper, Lipkin and four co-authors claimed it was improbable that COVID leaked from a lab, but the original version said it was unlikely that COVID leaked from a lab. That is, until Farrar wrote paper co-author Christian Anderson a day before publication, asking him to replace unlikely with improbable. 
Farrar also helped arrange a February 2020 teleconference with Dr. Anthony Fauci. The call came after a report claimed that the virus leaked from a high-level laboratory in Wuhan. Some of the call participants believed that COVID did not originate from nature. Paper co-author Anderson was one of them. He said some of the features potentially look engineered. Scientists on the call later wrote the 2020 paper attempting to disprove the lab leak theory. They also published a letter saying, quote, We stand together to strongly condemn conspiracy theories suggesting that COVID-19 does not have a natural origin. Here's Dr. Fauci shortly after the paper was published. And the mutations that it took to get to the point where it is now is totally consistent with a jump of a species from an animal to a human. Meanwhile, a group of Republican senators is calling on Director of National Intelligence Avril Haines to turn over COVID-19-related materials. They want to see the basis for her office's latest assessment on COVID. Here's Haines at a hearing on COVID last year. We have done a lot of work on this question and, uh, and have briefed committee members on uh, our analysis. The senators are led by Senator Roger Marshall. Indeed, this is a very complicated web which deserves a full investigation. They believe Haynes's office has not been transparent with Congress or the American public. They say standardizing agency conclusions ignores the breadth of scientific and other expertise in each agency. The truth needs to come out, and that's why I'm once again calling for a non-political 9-11 style commission. The Senate voted last week to declassify all information on the origins of COVID-19. When asked for a comment, Farrar told the Epic Times via email he has not yet started in his new position. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Felons in Minnesota will soon be able to vote as soon as they complete their prison sentence. State officials say this restores justice for disenfranchised groups. Minnesota's Democratic Governor Tim Walz signed the Restore the Vote Bill into law last week. It gives felons the right to vote immediately upon release from incarceration. They previously had to complete their prison sentence and their time on felony supervision after release before being allowed to vote again. The governor said in a press release that Minnesotans who have completed time for their offenses and are living, working, and raising families in their communities deserve the right to vote. The state's lieutenant governor added that, by restoring voting rights for formerly incarcerated Minnesotans, we continue down a path of restorative justice for Minnesotans who have been historically and systematically disenfranchised. Minnesota Republicans reportedly wanted that those convicted of serious crimes first complete their probation before regaining the right to vote. They tweeted that Democrats also killed legislation to require murderers and rapists to complete their sentences before becoming eligible to vote. The bill goes into effect on July 1st and is estimated to apply over 55,000 convicted felons in the state. Currently, 21 other states have restored the voting rights of felons once they leave prison. That included Republican-led North Dakota, Indiana, and Utah. In Maine, Vermont, and the District of Columbia, convicted felons are allowed to vote while they are still incarcerated. California lawmakers are currently looking to implement a similar law. There are 11 states that completely strip felons of voting rights for some crimes. In those 11 states, the right to vote can be regained, however. For example, through a pardon by the state's governor. According to the ACLU, Virginia and Kentucky permanently deprive anyone convicted of a felony of the right to vote. A Texas state lawmaker filed a bill Monday on whether or not the state should explore seceding from the United States. The bill would put the motion up to a vote by Texas residents. State Representative Brian Slayton filed the so-called Texit Referendum Act. The idea is to put the issue on the ballot at the next general election. 
The concept of state sovereignty is nothing new for the Texas GOP. However, the Texas bill proposes something new by calling for a vote on the matter. If the bill passes and a majority of Texans vote yes, a committee would be established to investigate the feasibility of independence. It would also propose options and potential plans to the Texas legislature. Sitcom actor Ben Savage has entered the congressional race. He is running as a Democrat in California's 30th district. The seat is currently held by Representative Adam Schiff, who has decided to run for the Senate. Savage rose to fame for his role in Boy Meets World from 1993 to 2000. He announced the congressional bid on social media and told fans he would help move the country forward. But this isn't the first time as a candidate. In 2022, he ran for a seat in the West Hollywood City Council, which ended up unsuccessful. Savage also reportedly interned for a U.S. senator in 2003 while he was studying political science at Stanford. The attorneys general from Missouri and Louisiana have a bone to pick with the Biden administration. They believe Americans' First Amendment rights are being violated and are asking a court to put an end to it. Entity's Daniel Monahan has the report. The attorneys general say the constitutional liberties of all Americans are at stake. They are taking action through the landmark free speech case, Missouri versus Biden. The case has allowed the attorneys general to gain access to thousands of internal documents from the federal government. Documents that they say tell a tale of coercion and collusion by top officials in the federal government with big tech social media companies. The attorneys general have filed a motion for a preliminary injunction in the case. They are asking the court to block top officials in the federal government from continuing in the alleged coercion and collusion. Missouri Attorney General Andrew Bailey says, quote, The First Amendment is the cornerstone of our republic because the founders understood that the remedy to false speech has always been counter-speech, not government censorship. While Louisiana Attorney General Landry says, quote, This egregious and unlawful viewpoint censorship by the White House, FBI, CDC, CISA, and other agencies not only chills speech, but it also unjustly inflicts grave and irreparable injuries on citizens and states. The two attorneys general listed alleged federal censorship activities in a press release. They include Dr. Anthony Fauci's reported involvement in attempting to disprove the lab leak theory. White House officials allegedly pressuring social media platforms to censor disfavored viewpoints. The CDC reportedly flagging specific social media posts for censorship. And the FBI, CISA, and the GEC reportedly flagging huge quantities of First Amendment protected speech to compliant platforms for censorship. The attorneys general say the censorship activities constitute a gargantuan federal censorship enterprise. They say it has stifled debate and criticism of government policy on some of the most pressing current issues. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. The U.S. Supreme Court has declined to hear a case about a prayer rally held in a Florida city in 2014. Atheists sued the city of Ocala in federal court, arguing the government appeared to be endorsing a specific religion and violating the Constitution by holding a prayer rally. The city asked the Supreme Court to intervene. Justice Clarence Thomas dissented from the court's decision not to take up the case. He said that he had serious doubts about the atheist's arguments and thought the justices should examine it. The high court's refusal to get involved means that the case will continue at the lower court level. And just ahead, police in California arrested a man for an attack in an aircraft. He allegedly tried to open the plane's emergency door. We have that and more just after this break.
Los Angeles District Attorney George Gascon has lost in a retaliation lawsuit. In that case, a deputy prosecutor claimed he was retaliated against for opposing Gascon's policies. The jury awarded the plaintiff $1.5 million in damages. Gascon is facing more than a dozen similar lawsuits. At the center of the issue is his directive on juvenile crimes. It aims to ease the penalties for underage offenders. Prosecutors who publicly raised concerns about the order were allegedly demoted or reassigned to other departments. One of them accused Gascon of forcing prosecutors to, quote, commit unethical and illegal actions in court. Gascon's office told Fox News that they were disappointed by the verdict, adding they won't change their decisions on the prosecutors. Authorities say a man attacked a flight attendant and tried to open the plane's emergency door in California. A passenger on the United Airlines flight from Los Angeles to Boston recorded this video of the man threatening to kill people Sunday. Authorities say Francisco Torres repeatedly stabbed a flight attendant in the neck with a broken spoon and tried to open the plane's emergency door. He was zip-tied on the flight and arrested after it landed. A criminal complaint was released Monday. It revealed that Torres told investigators he attacked the flight attendant because he believed they were trying to kill him. He also said he wanted to jump out of the plane. Torres has been charged with one count of interference and attempted interference with flight crew members using a dangerous weapon. He is set to appear in court on March 9th. The state of Ohio says about half the contaminated soil from the Norfolk Southern derailment has now been excavated. According to a press release issued by Governor Mike DeWine's office, crews have removed 1,900 feet of rail and soil from under that track. The EPA reports more than 2,000 tons of that dug-up soil have been hauled away. Some of it will be incinerated, and some will go to special landfills that can handle hazardous waste. 3.2 million gallons of wastewater from the site have also been sent to deep wells for disposal. The EPA tests the soil to make sure it is safe before the contractors are allowed to stop digging. The dirt is stored on site in a lined waste containment area until it can be hauled off. Texas A&M is ending the use of diversity, equity, and inclusion policies in both hiring and admissions. They join a growing list of public universities across the country to do so. The Texas A&M system includes 11 universities and eight state agencies in Texas. It announced the change after a warning from Governor Greg Abbott's office. The letter described DEI as an innocuous-sounding concept, but said it has been manipulated to push policies that expressly favor some demographic groups over others. The University of Texas has also suspended DEI initiatives at its 13 campuses and is reviewing its hiring and admissions policies. Gun stores in Texas, Louisiana, and Mississippi can now sell bump stocks on a legal basis. That's after the ATF missed a deadline to challenge a January court ruling. It ended the ban on bump stock sales in those three states. Bump stocks are attachments that allow for rapid gun firing. The ATF issued an administrative decision after the 2017 shooting in Las Vegas where 60 people were killed. That decision made the possession of bump stocks a federal crime. The maximum penalties included 10 years in prison and a fine of $250,000. The owner of a Texas firearms factory later sued against the ban and prevailed. The Fifth Circuit Court then asked the ATF to file a motion by February 27th, but the agency failed to act. California Governor Gavin Newsom says he's finished with Walgreens, at least as far as business goes. The pharmacy chain recently said it would not dispense abortion pills in 20 states. Republican attorneys general in those states warned Walgreens of risking breaking the law if it distributed the pills there. 
Newsom wrote on Twitter that California refuses to do business with Walgreens or, quote, any company that cowers to the extremists. The U.S. Food and Drug Administration in January allowed retail pharmacies to sell the abortion pills, including by mail. Republican Missouri Attorney General Andrew Bailey responded with a letter to the nation's largest pharmacy retail companies. The letter was co-signed by 19 other attorneys general. It warned that sale of abortion pills would violate federal law and abortion laws in many states. Bailey said he would enforce the laws protecting the health of women and their unborn children, adding that Missouri's elected representatives have spoken on the issue of abortion. Liquid albuterol has been hard to find lately, and it's about to become even harder. The drugs manufacturer Acorn shut down some of its facilities last month after filing for bankruptcy. It's the only company that made a certain bottled form of the medicine, which is used for continuous nebulizer treatment, a staple in children's hospitals. The shortage of albuterol, which is commonly used to treat people with breathing problems, has caused some issues in health facilities nationwide. Some have had to delay discharging patients because they didn't have enough medicine to give them. The shortage also caused more people to check into emergency rooms because they didn't have the medicine. The FDA is looking into how the manufacturer shutdown will impact drug supply chains around the country. Investigators in Massachusetts have identified a woman's remains found 45 years ago in Granby. Officials announced Monday that the woman known for decades as Granby Girl is actually Patricia Ann Tucker. Her remains were found in the woods near a logging road in November 1978 with a bullet wound to her head. An autopsy concluded she was between the ages of 19 and 27 and her death was ruled a homicide. She had no identification and was given an unnamed headstone. Investigators say they used old-fashioned police work and forensic genetic genealogy to finally ID the remains. Tucker's son, who was five years old when she died, helped with the identification process. After police located him, he sent his Ancestry.com profile to investigators. The DNA samples were a match. Investigators say they believe Tucker may have been killed by the man she was married to. He has since died, but they are hoping these new developments will help generate more leads in the case. Florida officials have issued a warning after a man died from a brain-eating amoeba. Health authorities say the unidentified man was infected after washing his face and rinsing his sinuses with infected tap water. But they stress that infections from the microscopic organism are very rare. There are no specific treatments for the condition, and it kills 97% of patients who contract it. Officials noted that the infection cannot occur via drinking tap water. The water has to go inside a person's nose. They caution people to be careful when bathing, playing with water, and creating sinus rinse solutions. The brain-eating amoeba is found throughout the United States. According to the CDC, about three people become infected each year. And just ahead, a think tank reports that Chinese researchers are beating Americans in dozens of critical technological areas. Find out how the two nations measure up. And South Korea plans to compensate citizens forced to work in Japanese factories during World War II. The move should ease a long-standing dispute between the two U.S. allies in Asia. We'll have the details soon when we return. Good to have you back with us. The Canadian government will investigate allegations of CCP interference in federal elections. 
Prime Minister Justin Trudeau made the announcement yesterday. In the coming days, we will appoint an eminent Canadian to the position of independent special rapporteur who will have a wide mandate to make expert recommendations on protecting and enhancing Canadians' faith in our democracy. Apart from an independent special rapporteur, there will also be separate new probes into the suspected foreign interference. Canadian media recently published detailed reports alleging schemes by the Chinese regime to interfere in Canada's elections in 2021 and 2019. The report cited anonymous intelligence sources. The rapporteur will have the power to make recommendations on foreign interference, including a public inquiry. Trudeau says he asked lawmakers in the Parliament's National Security Committee, as well as the National Security and Intelligence Review Agency, to launch separate investigations. Trudeau and Canada's top security officials have acknowledged interference attempts by the Chinese regime, but they insist that election outcomes were not altered. Trudeau previously rejected calls for a public inquiry. Is the U.S. losing its edge on science and technology? A security think tank highlights that concern in a new report. The key findings? From quantum computing to hypersonic missiles and future technologies, China is surging ahead. But how? Let's take a closer look. In 37 out of 44 key technologies and researches examined, China has a stunning lead over the U.S. and other nations. That's according to the Australian Strategic Policy Institute's latest study, funded by the U.S. State Department. Its report puts Chinese researchers ahead of Americans across critical sectors like defense, space, robotics, biotechnology, artificial intelligence, and quantum technology. In some fields, all of the world's top 10 research institutions are found to be based in China. Among the 44 technologies, the U.S. leads research in the remaining seven. Those are fields like semiconductor design and development, as well as computers and vaccines. The report says China's current technological leadership also gives it an advantage in future technologies that don't yet exist. But why is the U.S. falling behind? An intelligence community program's founder explains. And whoever gets the breakthrough first wins. Okay. Actually, that's not what China's doing. They are maneuvering in all technology worldwide, both offensively and defensively, to generate a competitive advantage. That's as China has been accused of stealing valuable technologies from the West and manipulating supply chains. Data also shows one-fifth of top Chinese researchers were trained in a Five Eyes country, an intelligence alliance comprising the U.S., Australia, Canada, New Zealand, and the U.K. As to why that matters... According to the report, China's current research strength in quantum communication could result in it going dark to Western surveillance and intelligence. China also has a particular interest and performance in military and space sectors, like hypersonics. What's more, the report found that China is likely to emerge with a monopoly in 10 fields, like synthetic biology, as well as electric batteries, 5G, and nanomanufacturing. The study is now calling for alliance among democratic nations to create secure supply chains and greater research investment. Germany is planning to ban Huawei and ZTE from parts of its 5G networks. The ban could include components already built into the networks. Germany is in the midst of a broad re-evaluation of its relationship with top trade partner China. This includes eliminating security risks posed by the Chinese companies Huawei and ZTE. Critics say their embedding in the mobile networks in the future could give Chinese spies and even saboteurs access to vast swaths of critical infrastructure. The companies have close ties to China's security services. 
Germany passed an IT security law in 2021. It sets high hurdles for manufacturers of telecom equipment for next-generation networks. However, it does not ban Huawei and ZTE, as some other countries have already done. A new report shows that Germany has become even more dependent on Huawei for its 5G radio access network equipment than in its 4G network. This, despite operators having avoided using the company's technology for core networks. A big rise in China's defense spending this year. On top of that, China's premier called on the country's army to boost combat preparedness further. This triggered a warning from the island of Taiwan. Here's more. China seems to be taking war preparations more seriously than ever, and Taiwan is staying on high alert. Beijing released its national budget over the weekend. It highlights China's plan to boost defense spending by 7.2 percent this year, a faster pace than the country's GDP target. China's Premier Li Keqiang also called on the country's army to further boost combat preparedness. China's neighbors, along with the U.S., are watching closely especially as tensions have spiked in recent years over Taiwan. Taiwan warned on Monday that the island must stay on alert this year. That's for a sudden entry by the Chinese military into areas close to its territory. The island's leadership repeated that aggressive action there would have consequences. Here's what Taiwanese Defense Minister Chiu Kuo-chen had to say when answering questions in parliament. Entering the 24 nautical mile zone or approaching the 12 nautical mile zone, some move like that. Then there would be a fight. Yes, that's right. China claims self-governed Taiwan as its own and has not renounced the use of force to bring the island under Chinese control if needed. The Chinese communist regime has never ruled Taiwan. The island has vowed to exercise its right to self-defense and counterattack if Chinese armed forces enter its territory. Other signs are also hinting at Beijing's war preparations. A new agency called the Office of Defense Mobilization is setting up locations across China. Here's more. At least 104 of the offices have emerged within just three months, over 90 of them in Fujian province, just across the Taiwan Strait. The offices are located from China's north to south and across east to west. They even extend to Tibet. But what are they for? According to announcements made by local authorities, the offices are tasked with coordinating and mobilizing resources. That's in areas like transportation, economy, technology, data, and communications. What's more, they're also designed to arrange civilian measures against would-be enemy air attacks. The announcements did not include terms like wartime, but these kinds of moves are commonly seen as pre-war activity. The United States created its own Office of Defense Mobilization in 1950, after North Korea invaded South Korea. China backed North Korea in its intrusion, triggering the concern over the possibility of a third world war. The office had coordinated and controlled all wartime mobilization activities in the U.S., including manpower, economy, and transportation. China's move comes at a time riddled with similar tensions and follows the Chinese Communist Party's adjustment of its laws last month, paving the way for war. The change says the Chinese army can take over the judiciary during times of war. A China affairs analyst says this change could force civilians to join the army and fight. And as long as a wartime declaration remains active in China, anyone who voices opinions that stray from Beijing's narrative could be at risk. South Korean firms will pay to resolve a forced labor dispute from decades ago. The country said yesterday that companies will compensate people forced to work under Japan's occupation. That lasted from 1910 to 1945. Your South Korea's foreign minister, Park Jin. Uh, 
I hope this solution can become a window of opportunity in history for South Korea and Japan to overcome hostility and conflict. And I think this is the last opportunity. Under the plan, South Korea would pay former forced laborers through an existing public foundation funded by private sector companies. The proposal was welcomed by Tokyo, but faced immediate backlash from some victims and South Korea's main opposition party. They've accused the government of yielding to Japan. About a dozen protesters demonstrated outside as Park made the announcement. Ju Jae-jun is one of them. The apology and compensation from the South Korean government and Japanese companies is shameful and hastily negotiated and don't reflect any victim's opinion. So it's invalid and we're saying that we as citizens will protest against it. Disagreements over labor and the women forced into Japanese military brothels have plagued ties between the two U.S. allies for years. But South Korean President Yoon Suk-yeol has made a push to repair the relationship. Park said that South Korea and Japan need to, quote, end the vicious cycle for the national interest for the people. <laughs> Japanese companies will not be expected to make any payments under the plan. But Japan's foreign ministers said they would not be blocked from donating if they want to. U.S. President Joe Biden, whose administration has pressed its two allies to reconcile, has hailed the announcement as groundbreaking. If you have any news tips or feedback for the show, don't hesitate to email us at news.today at ntd.com. And just ahead, Ukrainian parents under pressure to register their babies as Russian. Find out what families reported during Russia's eight-month occupation of Kherson. A grandfather protects his baby granddaughter for days under the rubble following Turkey's massive earthquake. Now the two are reunited. More on their story here on NTD News Today. What happens to the babies born in Russian-occupied regions of Ukraine? Parents in Kherson say they faced pressure to get Russian birth certificates during the eight months Russia controlled the region. When baby Katerina was born, her grandmother rushed her to one of the last registry offices in Kherson, still giving Ukrainian citizenship. The country's newest citizen was born that day into one of Ukraine's darkest times. Russia occupied Kherson and it was pressuring Ukrainian parents to accept Russian citizenship for their newborns. According to Katerina's mother, Natalia Lukina, this included denying parents access to free baby food and other handouts made necessary by the deprivations of war. When we asked for diapers, the Russians said if we came without a Russian birth certificate, they wouldn't give us any. We refused because we didn't want to have it reissued by Russia. Why should we? We said she was born in Ukraine. She is Ukrainian, not Russian. Reuters could not immediately corroborate her account. Russia controlled Kherson for eight months until Ukraine retook it last November. Later in the occupation, Russia required all newborns to receive Russian citizenship says Leonid Ramiga, chief doctor at the city's only working hospital. Russia's FSB intelligence service, which helps enforce rules in occupied territories, did not respond to a request for comment. Ukrainians under occupation often had to navigate sudden and sometimes dangerous changes in rules and requirements. 
According to Kherson's registry office, it's unclear how many babies received Russian citizenship because Russian officials recorded them and Ukrainian registration workers did not cooperate with the occupiers. Remiga said the number of babies born in the hospital dropped as many mothers left to give birth in Ukrainian-controlled regions or abroad. Russia's war in Ukraine has become the bloodiest armed conflict in Europe since World War II. Now a celebrity chef is striving to preserve Ukrainian identity. NTD's Andrew Thomas has more on the country's national dish. A bowl of soup has never meant so much to an entire nation. People in Kyiv struggle with their daily routine amid power cuts and air raid sirens. Despite their distance from the front lines, they are very much in the war. Last year, Russian forces made it within miles of the city. Uh, now we are near the building where the, in Kyiv, in the middle of the center of Kyiv, where the rocket uh, Russian uh, attack us. And uh, I, saw, I saw that, uh, I don't know, it's from my window, I saw how the rocket was flying and then it was like a huge uh, boom. Chef Evgen Klopotenko believes food is a critical part of Ukrainian culture. Borscht is the national dish. The beetroot soup has provided sustenance for many and pride for all. What, what changed is that uh, uh, much more people start to understand that they are Ukrainians. So they start to build, they start to, to feel their identity. Lopotenko likes to entertain and engage his clientele. He encourages them to try new takes on classic dishes. Before I had to, to cry, like, I had to shout, like, people, you have, listen, you have to eat Ukrainian food, you have to eat Ukrainian food. And they were, oh, we're okay, we're okay with the USSR food. But for now, uh, they say, okay, now we understand why you were, why you were cry, shouting about this. Tatiana Motorna has spent decades selling pickled vegetables at a Kiev market. She's glad of the surging interest in Ukrainian foods. Tell them that not only do we want to be different from the Russians with borscht, but that we want them to recognize Russia as Russia and Ukraine as Ukraine, and that we have shown that we can be a nation with our traditions, which go back to our grandfathers and great-grandfathers. The fighting in Ukraine continues, more than a year since Russia launched the war. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. A grandfather is reunited with his baby granddaughter. She's all that's left of his family after the tragic earthquake in Turkey. They survived under the rubble together for days before being separated. Together again, three weeks after they were pulled from the rubble in Turkey. Mithat Kalisli and his five-month-old granddaughter Zehra. I'll never leave you alone, my heart, he tells her. Zehra was Khaleesi's first thought when the earthquake woke him on February 6th. He managed to fetch the baby from her crib and find a safe shelter as the building collapsed around them. They were trapped together for two and a half days, Zehra on his lap, crying day and night, until rescuers heard their cries. I said, save Zehra first. Let me die. It is not important as long as Zehra is rescued. My Zehra was saved. I gave her to the rescuers. I thought they were going to keep her outside until I was pulled out too. But as I later found out, someone gave her to Afad. Afad emergency workers took Zehra to hospital in the city of Mersin, then to Ankara for treatment. 
Kilisli faced an agonising wait until this reunion at a children's home run by Turkey's family ministry in Ankara, hundreds of miles from their home in Hatay province. After a DNA test, Kilisli is allowed to take Zehra home. Kilisli's wife, his daughter, Zehra's mother, his son-in-law and Zehra's four-year-old brother Yusuf were all killed in the earthquake. My wound is very deep, but right now I feel as if I have forgotten my pain. God bless everyone. We found baby Zehra. I'm taking her right now. I am the happiest person in the world. She's all that's left of her parents. More than 45,000 people were killed in Turkey and millions were left homeless. Turkey's family ministry says it's looking for the relations of 23 more children who survived. In Turkey, seven people have been detained after violence erupted at a soccer game yesterday. It happened in the city of Bursa when a team from a mainly Kurdish city came to play. The players were pelted with water bottles and sharp objects such as small knives, while fans chanted Turkish nationalist and anti-Kurdish slogans. Authorities said three officials were removed from their posts pending an investigation. A pro-Kurdish party said players were subjected to, quote, organized lynching and fascism, and that they were also targeted by racist chants and fireworks outside their hotel the night before the match. The Turkish Football Federation condemned the incident. And just ahead in France, livestock farmers are struggling to sell their products at a fair price. NTD met some of them at France's main agricultural fair in Paris. Get the full story just after this break. A sixth nationwide strike in France as unions fight back against President Emmanuel Macron's pension reforms. Commuters in Paris suffer severe traffic disruptions, but most say they are supportive of the walkout. Of course it affects me because I need to go to work like everyone else. I don't like being stressed and commuting, but it's not just important. I would say it's of utmost importance because it's about our pensions. That's what you work for all your life. So I'm not one of the protesters, but I support them for what they do. The reforms include measures like raising the pension age by two years to 64. Polls indicate opposition from a majority of voters, but the government has stood its ground, saying the plan is needed to keep the pension system afloat. Unions are working to convince lawmakers not to vote for it. More than one million people joined the previous protest in late January, but the country's transportation minister called the current strike one of the most difficult for travelers, as most trains were halted. France's biggest annual agriculture show is underway in Paris. Several livestock farmers told us they're worried about the future as they face rising prices and stricter EU regulations. NTD's France correspondent David Vives has the story. The International Agriculture Fair in Paris drew over 600,000 visitors last week. It's a big success for the producers and farmers who traveled across France to present their agricultural products and livestock. Farmers here told us they feel supported by the French public while they are experiencing challenges from rising costs. Currently, our costs go up. In other words, the expenses for everything that's energy, fuel, electricity, production costs, 
So everything has gone up, like everywhere. We still have basic assistance programs in place, but you don't necessarily want to have assistance given to you all the time to raise the basic income. All we want is to have a sustainable income and to be more confident in our production. French farmers' average income is around £1,300 per month. This includes financial support from the government. But official figures show one in five farmers lives below the poverty line. Several with small-sized farms told us they don't qualify for state aid. That's the case for farmer Jean-François Ondé from Eastern France. The real farmer doesn't necessarily benefit from these subsidies. We are always afraid of what will happen. But for a very long time, the fear it has always been there. Those who govern us don't necessarily come to work with us, so we are always afraid of what might happen. New regulations might change French farming habits, such as the ban of some pesticides. Prime Minister Elisabeth Bond said the government will implement new EU rules but not go beyond. The farm-to-fork strategy is the European Commission's plan for a sustainable agriculture. It's part of the European Green Deal, a package of policy initiative aiming to have the EU reach climate neutrality by 2050. The farm-to-fork strategy is a manifestation of the European Green Deal in the agricultural sector and therefore it includes a certain number of objectives. For example, an objective to increase the total area under organic farming and the objective to reduce the use of pesticides. There is a work program that goes along with a number of legislative proposals that have been made or will be made on this subject. But the so-called green transition comes at a price. In the Netherlands, the government's plan to cut livestock numbers to meet emission goals is set to force thousands of farmers to sell their farms. Agricultural impact studies conducted in France, Italy and Germany suggest the Commission's environmental ambitions will sacrifice the agricultural sector. As for French farmers, some think they might meet a similar fate as Dutch farmers. I think in France it will be similar as in the Netherlands, but farmers will leave by themselves and nobody will ask them to stop. I don't think we are in the same circumstances as the Netherlands, for one thing, but the number of farmers in France is decreasing every year. Okay then, so there you go. Are we really going to get there? A very, very low number of farmers. I hope not, because we need farmers to feed the world. David Vives, NTD News, Paris. At least 3,487 sea lions have died in Peru. That's since an H5N1 avian flu outbreak spread across species. This according to the National Service of Protected Areas by the state on March 2nd. The agency has also reported five dead fur seals and at least 63,000 dead birds since the H5N1 outbreak. Peru first reported H5N1 outbreak among birds in late November of 2022. They were found in protected natural habitats along the Peruvian coast. The agency urges citizens to avoid physical contact with wildlife, dead or alive, and contact its helpline should any animal bodies be found. And still to come, it's perfection. That's what audience members say in Montana after seeing Shen Yun for the first time. They add that the performance leaves an important message for the future. 
A one-of-a-kind rocket launch is set for tomorrow from Cape Canaveral, Florida. The world's first 3D printed rocket. We'll be back with more soon here on NTD News. an uplifting and educational performance. Audiences enjoy watching Shen Yun Performing Arts in Billings, Montana. Here's what they had to say. The Shen Yun Performing Arts returned to Billings, Montana for two performances. Audience members marveled at its beauty and purpose. Just uplifting, just really, really beautiful. Just, it releases you from, from the daily grind of what you're dealing with. The balance, the perfection, the unity in the ways that they danced was just stunning to me. The colors, the beauty, the way the, that the performers would jump off the stage and come up on the screen, that was just amazing. I just love the music. The dancing is fabulous. I'll tell you, the, the orchestration and the, and the choreography is amazing. Traditional Chinese culture is known to be divinely inspired. In the past, people's faiths were woven into its culture as depicted in some of Shen Yun's pieces. One of the most basic beliefs is we have a religion founded on love and kindness and truth and dignity of every human person. And to hear what the Chinese people have to say through the dance and the expression of kindness and honesty and the unity that they're expressing, I think is very, very lovely and, and nice. I really appreciated the context of a higher being uh, and coming into life and how it touches life and how if you appeal to a higher being, you're going to be okay. You know, things are going to work out. So, so I really appreciated that because you don't see that very often now. I was very impressed with the fact that they were focusing on good and evil. <laughs> the one line that I remember from the song, from the baritone, was atheism and evolution of the devil's creed and it was constantly good versus evil in this and it showed a lot of beauty which is from the creator. Shenyun's mission is to revive 5,000 years of culture which was nearly lost under China's communist regime. Audience members believe Shenyun leaves an important message for the future. I love history and so much of what we learned in the show we didn't we didn't know and you also brought into the present some of the things that are happening in China that, that we really need to know about, which is so brave. I brought both of my girls because I think cultural expression is important. I want my kids to be exposed to other nations and other cultures and peoples and their beliefs. And I think recognizing the oppression that's going on in China by the communist government against the people and the religious persecution is important. And so I want them to be exposed to the truth. And we can't erase history. We have to learn from it. And so I'm just really, really excited and pleased to be able to experience actually seeing what Shen Yun is trying to do to spread the message across the world. So thank you. There's no other way for me to see what beat China was before communism. And this Shen Yun is bringing that to the public. And I'm very thankful for that. Shen Yun performs in Southern California, Florida, and Colorado next. NTD News, Billings, Montana. The world's first 3D printed rocket is ready for launch. The mission has been dubbed GLHF. Good luck, have fun. Entity's Andrew Thomas has the latest. The Terran 1 rocket stands at 110 feet tall and 7.5 feet wide. It's said to be the largest 3D printed object to attempt orbital flight. We have the ability to demonstrate a brand new way of manufacturing large aerospace systems that has the potential to make access to space less expensive, more frequent, and more reliable. 
Relativity Space is the company behind Terran 1. According to them, 85% of this first rocket has been 3D printed, but they aim to increase that figure to 95%. The rocket prior to this with the highest percentage was probably, I don't know, maybe 4% 3D printed by mass. So it's a huge step change. And you know, as, as such, we need to prove that a 3D printed rocket can survive the environments of a rocket's flight. Relativity Space is able to make a Terran 1 from raw materials within 60 days. The company also uses 100 times fewer parts than current construction methods. So far, everything's looking great. The, the team has, you know, has gone through the, the major reviews that they need to as we, as we head into launch. The weather outlook is, is looking quite positive. Terran 1 is set to launch Wednesday afternoon from Cape Canaveral, Florida. As part of this mission, we're going to be flying uh, the very first failed or, uh, printed object that Relativity made, um, which really just shows how far the team's come. Relativity says the Terran 1 rocket is the precursor to the Terran R. It will also be entirely 3D printed and reusable. Terran R is expected to launch in 2024. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Whether it's morning, noon, or night, open the box, pour the cereal, and add the milk. And do it with a little extra enthusiasm because today is National Cereal Day. It's observed every year on March 7th. Cereal traces its roots to the 1800s. The common morning meal as we know it today started when the Kellogg brothers first put cereal in a box and sold it on a large scale. What kind of cereal was it? Cornflakes. Some other early cereals were Grape Nuts, Kicks, and Cap'n Crunch. And here's a fun fact, Battle Creek, Michigan is nicknamed the cereal capital of the world. A snowmobile rider in Idaho had a scary encounter with a moose last week. Jeremiah Bigelow shot this video Thursday. He was riding with four friends on three sleds when they encountered a moose. His brother stood on his sled and waved his arms to distract the moose after the animal charged Jeremiah first, but stopped short. The moose then made contact with his brother's sled seconds after he was able to jump off it. Bigelow says the riders followed the moose for a half mile after the incident to make sure it was okay. He also says they learned a valuable lesson. If you see a moose, just back up and give it space. That's all for today's program. We're really glad to have you with us. Please send us an email if you'd like to tell us something. We're going to put it on screen. For podcasters, that's news.today at ntd.com. I'm Kevin Hogan. NTD News, New York City.